Welcome to episode 14 of the Pogue McGold podcast. James Carew, co-editor of Pogue McGoal, and you're listening to the 14th edition of the podcast, coinciding with issue 6 of Ireland's only football magazine. Each episode features contributors to both the magazine and website, traversing the globe to bring you stories on football culture. Toggle back wherever you get your podcasts for previous episodes and pick up a copy of the magazine in Eason's and Tuttle's outlets around Ireland or online via pogmagoal.com. On today's episode, we're talking to Devin Rowcliffe, a football writer based in Toronto, Canada, about an article that appeared in issue three of the Pogba Gold magazine. But he's also the author of the brilliantly named Who Ate All the Squid, a book about footballing adventures in South Korea, which we'll also be touching on. But first, I'm joined once again by my co-host, Taylor Gill, a communications manager based in London and a regular contributor to the pod and magazine. Welcome back, Taylor. Hello James, how are you doing? I'm good. At the time of recording, the hype is starting to build towards Euro 2020, or is it 21, with countries starting to announce squads. As an Englishman, Taylor, and the fact so many games take place at Wembley, you must be confident that football's coming home, right? (laughs) Um, I wouldn't put it like that. I'm confident that we have probably the most expensive squad in the competition, but I'm also very confident that we will underachieve and we'll all have a good time, but we won't finish with the top prize, I fear. Okay, I might take you up on a bet on that. I think it could be, as much as it pains me to say it, this could be England's year. Um, I posted something on social media this week where it really hit home that Ireland is missing out. I was walking by a pub and they merely replaced the Six Nations rugby flags still up from last year, swapped out Ireland for Turkey. And I have to say, that stung a little. <laughs> yeah, so, so who are you, you going to follow in this, in this competition then? You, uh, Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And so today we're going back to a feature from issue three of our magazine entitled Northern Exposure, with the writer Devin Rowcliffe. At the time, the Canadian Premier League was about to see its official launch, which has since transpired. And there were some fascinating talking points about how it was all going to go off. Welcome to the Pogue McGold podcast, Devin. Hey, gentlemen, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. On each of our episodes, we like to ask our guest what got them into football. But we'll forgive you if you want to call it soccer. <laughs> Fair enough. Um... I actually grew up as a typical Canadian uh, following baseball. I was pretty passionate about baseball, both playing it and watching it. I got into football actually quite late, probably halfway through my undergraduate degree. Uh, I think I was just flipping channels 
in the uh, spring of 99 and I came across a Premier League game. I think it was a Blackburn kit of all things that caught my eye. And I watched the, the remainder of the game and a few other games during the, the remainder of the season. And I quite liked it. And there was also a, a two hour end of season special that somehow made its way to Canada back in the late 90s. Um, so, yeah, I got into it, um, had to uh, find a team to get behind. Um, my family, several generations back, came from County Devon, hence my given name. So, okay. in theory, I could have supported Exeter, but back then it was pretty tough to get behind a league team. If you're, if you're abroad, there was next to no coverage. There was no TV coverage of the league. Internet coverage was pretty sparse. Uh, I think these days all the leagues have a, like a package deal where all the teams use the same website a template and they just update it in their colors and whatnot. But back then it was kind of a free for all in the late nineties and every, every club had their own site. Um, so I think it was, it was too tough to follow a league team. I decided because I usually support the, the underdogs. I was going to support one of the three newly promoted sides that year. Okay. So I had the choice between Sunderland, Bradford city or uh, Watford. Um, somehow I ended up choosing Watford. I don't recall if it's because they were the smallest team. They went up through the playoffs. I think they finished fifth in the, the old division one, or it might've been something to do with websites and easy to follow. I don't remember, but I didn't really have any connection to the community of Watford, uh, got behind them. Um, I probably should have chosen Sunderland in hindsight because I'm from Vancouver. Originally, I've spent most of my life in Vancouver and during the 1967 uh, NASL season, a bunch of teams from Europe and South America all came to the U S and Canada and masqueraded as North American teams for that, uh, European close season. So actually Sunderland played as the Vancouver Royal Canadians during that summer wow. of 1967. Yeah. Wow. And I discovered that after the fact, unfortunately, but I probably should have chosen them. Um, so in 2003, I went out to South Korea for a year. That was my first time living in a country where football was really big. It's one of the two major sports out there. And that was quite nice. Um, I had gotten into football after watching the Premier League. So for example, in the year 2000, Canada actually won the CONCACAF Gold Cup. So that's our, our continental competition. That was just months after I started following football. And really for Canada to win like that, that's once in a a lifetime maybe it's it's quite rare so i was quite lucky um got behind the canadian clubs but went out to uh south korea for a year that's the premise of my book then i went out to the uk for about three years uh i went out there supporting watford having never stepped foot in the country before um <laughs> i went to a few games i had a i took a pilgrimage to vicarage road soon after arriving and living in london but i decided to get behind my local club i didn't know who my local club was so i, I had a look uh, QPR and Brentford were both close to me because I was living in uh, Ealing at the time. But ultimately, I opted for a, a non-league club in the ninth tier called Hanwell Town. You've probably <laughs> never heard of them. Amazing. So, <laughs> so I, I ended up becoming club photographer and even sitting on the committee quite briefly. Um, so that was a really good experience. Um, and I guess before I went out to the UK, obviously Wimbledon uh, relocated to uh, Milton Keynes and I kind of radicalized, I guess you could say. So I was kind of turned off of the Premier League because of that. I, I began to uh, understand that it was very, very commercialized. And I learned more about how the, the change to having a Premier League meant less money for the football league clubs and whatnot. So I began to look more at the lower tiers of the, of the, uh, the pyramid, began reading the non-league paper actually when I was living in London and really uh, got more into the grassroots side of the game. Unfortunately, that doesn't really exist out here in Canada. We have these big teams and massive stadiums, uh, but there's not a lot of culture for following amateur sport out in Canada. So in, in London, you have all sorts of clubs with their own ground, 
Um, you can go and support them. You know, you get the whole experience where they've got a clubhouse, match day program, a bar. None of that really exists in Canada at the amateur level, unfortunately. So that's something I'm, I'm missing uh, living back in Canada now. But I had a great, great time out there. What an education, though. And you've taken those experiences back to, to Canada. I give you permission to, to tell me off when I compare you to your southern neighbour. But there are there are some striking characteristics in that football is the highest participation sport in Canada, um, which reflects the USA and, and over a number of decades it has grown. So that, that's what struck me, first of all. Tell us about the amateur level. You, you've touched on the professional level. But tell us about kind of Sunday league football or, or schoolboy, schoolgirl football in Canada, your experience of it. Yeah, there's not a whole lot um, in terms of the spectator-oriented side. You're talking about participatory. So, I mean, it's huge here. As you mentioned, it's the number one sport for playing. But it's, it's I, I don't mean to be derisive, but it's almost like a babysitting service, dare I say. And the vast, vast majority of players will leave by the age of 12 or so. They might gravitate to other sports or they might just quit sports entirely. But uh, okay. yeah, there is, there is organized sport. But as I said, it's almost used like a babysitting service. Uh, I guess you would go into high school sport if you were really serious about uh, football. Um, and at that stage, there are some decent uh, citywide or regional leagues here. But um, even though the, the quality of the game is quite high, there are next to zero spectators, unless you're the, the spouse or, you know, best mates of one of the players or something. Very, very few people attend, unfortunately. Uh, but there are a lot of people playing. It is at a pretty high level. It's just that um, I think because amateur clubs don't own their own ground, they don't have a clubhouse, they can't charge admission for tickets, they can't make any revenue, they're, they're renting a pitch from a park from the city essentially so it's pretty difficult for the amateur clubs to to get spectators in i was oddly enough a few years ago i was actually involved in trying to get some support going for an amateur club um there was a team called vancouver united that were playing in i think the third or fourth tier of the vancouver league so a bunch of us got going um we called ourselves the umbrella ultras it was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek name because it rains so often in vancouver much like in the uk and ireland um Tried to get that going, but it just kind of fizzled out because people just, you know, they they look down their nose at it, unfortunately. But uh, the game the game is growing really quickly as a spectator sport, and hopefully that will eventually cascade down into the amateur levels. But uh, it's going to be an uphill battle. Did you play Devon, or do you do you play now? A little bit, but not really. I mean, I got into it quite quite late, halfway through my undergrad. So I do play. I play as a left back, but uh, I'm not. I'm not great. I'm good at just smashing up a striker, but uh, <laughs> not the most adept touch on the ball. Let's put it that way. Why do people drift away at the age of twelve? It's it's is what would be is ice hockey the most popular sport in Canada? What what is it that makes people move on? Good question. Um. I think people just tend to move on from sports full stop once they get yeah. to a certain age. Ice hockey is fairly popular depending on where you are in the country. Uh, where I'm from in Vancouver, it's not nearly as, as popular to play as football. But uh, I think the way we build our cities um, in Canada, uh, a lot of the, the football takes place on the outskirts of the cities and the peripheries and the suburbs. So you need a parent to drive you there. You know, the whole idea of helicopter parenting and that sort of thing. So uh, parents are initially quite keen to drive their kids to sport, I guess, but 
they tire of being chauffeurs after a while, I think. And the, the kids, they become more social, I guess. I'm not entirely sure why, but I just think it's, as I said, it's almost like seen as being a babysitting, babysitting service that you hit 12 or maybe 13 or 14 and you might gravitate to a different sport or you might concentrate more on school or you might start dating or you might start, I don't know, graffitiing buildings or something like that. But uh, yeah, kids, kids seem to drift out of the sport around age 12 to 14 i suppose it's, it's unfortunate because if everyone stayed in the game if we had more clubs that had a, a cradle to grave mentality and people played as an adult we would probably be fairly decent canada at the international level one thing that might arrest that exodus from the game is the canadian premier league and so i want to jump in to the article from issue three it was fascinating to go back the initial setting up of the league and what that might entail. And now it has since come to pass that it it is up and running. I want to start by reading out the first paragraph, which I think is quite interesting. A little over 150 years ago, around the time the rules of association football were being drawn up, a team of enthusiastic Irishmen laced up for a game against a side from a charitable institution offering support to immigrants known as St George's Society. However, this match did not take place in Dublin or London, but rather in a young colonial city on the shores of Lake Ontario, which just a quarter century earlier had been christened Toronto. So in this podcast series and in doing the magazine, we've toured the world and has often found that the game spread around the globe through... English merchants and sailors and I don't doubt that was the case with Canada as well but the reference to the Irishman was quite interesting and and there is a huge history of travel between Ireland and Canada so it, it was interesting that there in Toronto one of those first games involved Irishmen. Yeah, I wouldn't have expected that before I was researching. I thought it would just have been primarily English who came over and started it. But uh, yeah, the the roots of the game, much like in the United States, go way, way back to the to yeah. the late 1800s, I believe. Um, when we think of soccer in the United States, we think of, I guess, Major League Soccer, which didn't begin until 1996. Of course, there's the North America Soccer League before that, that began in the 70s. But it seems like a, a quite a new sport. Um, but yeah, it goes, it goes way far back. Um, obviously over time, the game, uh, the game's popularity as a spectator sport began to shift. There were city leagues and local leagues in cities like, uh, Toronto and Montreal. Um, they were quite popular, but I think the, the national leagues of ice hockey and whatnot began to dominate, um, out in Vancouver because of the weather, it's a very temperate sort of a UK Irish sort of a climate, um, playing playing football and even i suppose watching to a certain degree remain very very popular there's a very different culture out in vancouver and coastal british columbia toward football whereas out out here where i am now in toronto it's very much ice hockey number one to watch baseball number two etc etc somewhere down that list is football but uh yeah it depends where you go in the country but yeah it's it's a it's an interesting history that uh, the irish were in the, the very beginning the birth of the sport in canada we're here to make history and here to start this thing off. Welshman bicycle kick! Oh, Canada! It's forged! It's a championship made for Hamilton! There was all these people that were just so excited to have soccer in Calgary. You are Canada! Say you are Canada! 
the foot soldiers just drive the energy around the stadium. Canada, it's your time. Davies is there. It's in. It's over the line. Alfonso Davies. Lucas Cavallini. <laughs> Can you believe it? You realize professional soccer is in Canada and it's here to stay. The, the whole article was about the impending creation of this league. To jump forward a bit, it has begun. What, how have the first couple of seasons gone off? Uh, pretty well. The league was supposed to start for 2018, but due to some logistical challenges, they delayed one year. So they started in 2019. Um, so they had that first full season then. But uh, sadly, the, uh, the second season of the league coincided with the pandemic. So that was a big challenge to the league. Um, looking back to the article, if I may, at the, the five challenges that I mentioned, yeah. I think TV revenue, in my mind, was probably one of the, the biggest obstacles for the league. Um, if you think back to MLS that started in 96, during the first few seasons, rather than making money from television, they were actually paying money to be on network television. So they were paying money to, I think it was ABC, the the network um, and they were showing two games a year. I think that was it. I think it was the season opener, the league opener, and then the playoff final called MLS cup. Um, and then between all of that, I, I believe it was up to each individual MLS team to find their own, usually local TV deal. So there wasn't much money being made. Often they were paying the channels often like a, like an infomercial, so to speak. Um, but luckily, because the game is a lot bigger now, uh, during the launch of the league, the league was able to sign a 10-year agreement with a Spanish media company called Media Pro um, for a streaming deal. So unfortunately, it's not on terrestrial TV. It's just online, and it's a subscription-based service. So if you don't subscribe to that service, you don't see it. So the, the, the footprint of the league is very small, I guess you could say, because of that, but it does help financially in terms of that financial uncertainty for a new league that there's this 10-year deal that the league has yeah. uh, so that's been that's been quite helpful i think to make sure that it remains uh, financially sustainable but i'm wondering that the numbers haven't been revealed in terms of how much money is being made here um so i'm wondering if the the amount of money in the the contract is okay now but come year eight year nine year ten will the league find that they're not quite making enough money as they would have hoped for so that'll be interesting to see what, what's the football style been like over the first two seasons? Obviously, we have uh, so many leagues in Europe that are so distinguishable by their style. You know, we think of uh, like um, the pace of the English game or the defensive solidity of the Italian Serie A. Is there a style that has emerged in the first couple of seasons in Canada? Yeah, from what I've seen, it's more like a UK style of a pace. It's fairly quick. You don't have much time on the ball, pretty hard tackles. Uh, the players tend to be quite young, obviously, because the league just launched. And uh, one of the downsides that we can get to in a minute of the league has been very, very low salaries. So some of the senior players haven't been attracted back to the league, unfortunately. So you do have a lot of young players full of a lot of energy, and it has been quite brisk, this pace of the game. So I would, yeah. yeah, definitely say it's something like maybe the championship or league one sort of a style. And how many games do they play? Because um, I know there's quite a, a limited number of teams at the moment compared to other sort of established leagues. How, how many teams are there and what, what's the format? 
Yeah, I think there's eight teams the, for this past season. 2019, the launch, there were only um, uh, seven teams. So you'd only play six opponents. Uh, I think in total, there was about 100 games. So I think it was home and away once, if I'm not mistaken. But in the second season in 2020, because of the pandemic, they had to have a bubble and whatnot. And they only played about a third as many games as they would have ideally liked to. Um, but uh, it's an interesting point because in Major League Soccer, because the U.S. is so large, you have a Western Conference and an Eastern Conference. So that pulls you away from that traditional every opponent home and away. And some of the teams in Canada are now starting to moan a little bit about the, uh, the high travel. So in particular, in the Maritimes out east, we have a team in Halifax, and they're quite far away from all the other sides, especially if they fly all the way to the West coast and play against Victoria. I think I mentioned in my article, it's like the equivalent of playing or traveling from um, Dublin to Tehran, something like that. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the travel is horrendous. And I think some of the teams are already starting to mutter and grumble about it. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more of a uh, regionalization in the league coming up. One of the points you made in the article was that the big Canadian clubs in MLS, so Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, uh, initially weren't going to abandon MLS to come back to this Canadian Premier League. And I guess that's a kind of a wait and see, first of all, if it is to grow, potentially that could happen. But the other point your article made was the league organisers didn't necessarily want to put teams in those cities to compete for hearts and minds and bums on seats, as we say. But if I'm right, is it York United are based in Toronto? Um, maybe you might uh, expand on how that has played out. Okay, yeah. So as I mentioned in the article, there were five teams uh, when I wrote the article. Uh, three were in Major League Soccer and two were in the U.S. second division known as the USL. So the three big cities were Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, and MLS. And then you had uh, Edmonton and Ottawa in USL. Um, so as you mentioned, there is a team in the Canadian Premier League in Toronto, which essentially competes with Toronto FC of Major League Soccer. Um, the, the attendance has been fairly poor. If you look at the attendance table for the league, that's actually the team with the lowest attendance is the Toronto team. So that's a little bit surprising, perhaps. Um, if you look at the city of Toronto, TFC plays in the very southern part of the city, whereas York United, which was called York 9 for the first two seasons, it's since been renamed York United for this coming season and afterward. Uh, but York United plays in the very northern outskirts of the, of the city. And the name York 9 actually was a reference to, I believe it's the nine communities in the York County, which is immediately north of Toronto. So uh, it was a, the branding was kind of unclear of the team. Were they trying to aim primarily for York County or were they aiming for York and Toronto? Um, that's why they actually rebranded to York United because they wanted to be a little more open towards Toronto and that sort of thing. So they're using a lot more imagery of the city of Toronto now. Uh, but as I said, yeah, the, the, the attendance was fairly poor. It was lowest of the, of the league. That was a bit of a disappointment. Um, the other two cities that are in major league soccer, so Montreal and Vancouver, they don't have teams. Uh, there are some mutterings that there might be one in uh, Metro Vancouver, greater Vancouver coming up, but we'll, she'll see. Um, and then there, there were two cities in the second division. So Ottawa, Edmonton, and this is where the politics gets a bit feisty. So Ottawa initially absolutely refused to play in this league. 
and uh, as did Ottawa. Sorry, Edmonton and Ottawa both refused. So what happened was Ottawa played in the uh, 2019 USL season during the first year of the Canadian Premier League. So they're playing in the US second division. After that initial season had ended, the Canadian Soccer Association said to Ottawa, we're revoking your uh, sanctioning as a, as a club, basically. So either you move to um, the Canadian Premier League or we pull the plug on you and you can't play in the US second division anymore. And the team refused to move to the Premier League. So they pulled the plug and they Why folded. Not? So uh, luckily, um, Atletico Madrid decided to create a team in Ottawa, of all places. I think they have a bit of history of creating teams overseas. There used to be a team in Calcutta in India, but they decided, of all places, to start a team in Ottawa. So there was no gap there in Ottawa for football. They went from U.S. second division one year to being a Spanish-inspired club in the Premier League the next year, as of the 2020 season. Um, and Edmonton initially said they would not move to the Premier League, but they did, the FC Edmonton. So they, they ended up joining. And that was a good thing because they've been around for quite a few years now, FC Edmonton. So that was positive to see. That's amazing. So the, the Canadian Football Authority pulled rank and, and could potentially do so in the future. I guess the hope would be that it grows enough to entice Toronto and Montreal and, and Vancouver back. Uh, it's an interesting question. I think that there's a pretty big gap between Major League Soccer and um, the Canadian Premier League. So you were asking about uh, attendance and how it, how it uh, fared, how Toronto fared being in this new league. And I mentioned they were bottom of the Premier League table. But actually, if you look at the average attendance for the Premier League, it's only about 4,000. Whereas I think Montreal makes about gets about 15,000 in the door in major league soccer. Toronto gets 25,000 average. Okay. Uh, Vancouver gets about 20. So it's a small fraction of the attendance, a uh, very little uh, media coverage of the Canadian Premier League thus far. Uh, initially there was not much MLS coverage, but it has grown by leaps and bounds in Canadian television and radio and whatnot. So there's a, there's a gap in attendance, there's a gap in media coverage, there's a gap in quality of play, there's a big gap in terms of cost as well. So for Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver to jump down, that would be a huge risk for them. Um, and I think one of the big complications is that this is a franchise league or both leagues are franchise leagues. So if, if these were independent leagues, like if you're Swansea City and somehow the League of Wales attracted you back, um, you could just jump. But here the quote unquote ownership group of a, of a Canadian major league soccer team only owns 49% uh, of the team. The league owns 51% or a slim majority of every team in the league. So major right. league soccer as an entity, a single entity owns the majority of Toronto FC, Montreal and Vancouver Whitecaps. So for them to hop back to the premier league, they would have to essentially sell uh, their stake, their 49% of the club, and buy a new franchise and blah 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 blah. So it's it's quite uh, cumbersome and all the there's politics, there's finances that are quite entwined and whatnot. So it would be very difficult to do. But I think the main problem is just that it's there's a there's a big gap. I mean, imagine Cardiff or Swansea or Wrexham going and playing in the Cymru Premier. Like it's it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. And I think it's really the same thing for the uh, Canadian Premier League clubs. Maybe in future decades, if the if the league grows significantly in stature and in quality, that might happen. But for now, it looks highly doubtful. That kind of leads me on to my question. How, how do you rate the prospects of the league? How sustainable do you think it is, given what you've seen in the past two years? Um, 
one league executive was throwing around the figure of 4,000 as an attendance figure for what the league wanted to attract to be sustainable. And they did actually reach that. So that is quite positive. Um, and some of the larger sides have gotten much bigger than that. Um, as I mentioned, in terms of the TV revenue, having the, the streaming service and a 10-year contract really helps. So there's that, that certainty with the money. Um, I think travel is one of the big issues. That was one of the issues why the original league, the Canadian Soccer League from the 80s and 90s sunk because traveling huge distances is very costly. Um, so the league does have a, a travel sponsor. One of the airlines does sponsor the league and they actually sponsor a couple of the team's kits as well. So that's really helpful. Um, but yeah, so far so good, I would say. It, it was, it was a really a shot in the Achilles that the league was in its second season and then the pandemic hits because it was really starting to gain momentum and then just suddenly it's knocked out. Um, so, and also because the games are on TV, it's, it's difficult for people to stumble upon the league. Like I, the way I stumbled upon the Premier League is by changing channels on terrestrial TV. So uh, I think if the media coverage can be increased, that would be a big boon to the league in terms of getting uh, increased attendance. Uh, I'm not too worried about the financial sustainability for now. It seems like the people involved have pretty deep pockets, especially compared to the original Canadian Soccer League of the 80s and 90s. So that's not too bad, but I think uh, money is looking good, but I think exposure might be the real challenge for the league in terms of growing attendance looking forward. What about creating a fan culture for these franchises from scratch? How has that played out? Because the MLS has been fascinating to watch in, in how it started out. It was very uh, kind of family friendly in some places and then other places started to get a bit gritty and create their own kind of atmosphere like Portland and these kind of places. Um, what has it been like that you've seen? What have you observed from the start of the Canadian Premier League? Yeah, it's been it's been pretty pretty easy for these uh, for the cultures to get set up in terms of you know supporters getting organically created. They're the supporters groups being uh, springing to life, shall we say, out of nothing. As you mentioned, it's a very much like a top down franchise base. Create teams out of the ether with no history. So obviously that is a, was a concern for the league, but most cities have taken to it pretty well. I think when people watch uh, Toronto FC or Vancouver, Montreal and see the huge crowds or other MLS teams, or they watch European or South American football, they get inspired by what they see. So there's a bit of uh, copycatism, shall we say. I was actually involved with Vancouver when we were just starting up the uh, supporters group in the, the late 90s, around the same time as Seattle and Portland. So I'm seeing very similar things from the, uh, from the Canadian Premier League clubs. Um, teams like Pacific FC, which is a Victoria, British Columbia club, they've got very boisterous support, uh, big numbers. So yeah, it's, it's growing pretty well. And we haven't seen any dare I say plastic sort of stuff where, you know, the clubs are creating the supporters groups like we sometimes see in places like the U S and try and ram it down people's throats. It has been fairly organic. Um, and I think that is a big draw that really does help differentiate football as a spectator sport vis-a-vis -vis other sports is if you can go and you can see people standing and chanting and lighting flares and waving flags and that sort of thing. That's a lot different than the typical rather sedentary, um, 
support that you see at other other sports here usually here you know there's a big jumbotron a big screen that says cheer now that sort of thing it's, it's sometimes and people will cheer during goal scored whatever in other sports but other than that they tend to kind of sit on their hands so it has been actually a, a very big selling point for toronto and uh, vancouver and montreal as a major league soccer club to to have that huge raucous support sometimes it does get a little bit feisty and whatnot and there's some kind of politics involved but yeah it has grown fairly well to answer your question in the premier league and i do think that will help it to continue to grow is there anything uniquely canadian about canadian soccer clubs that might sound stupid but what would what would differentiate a canadian football fan from somewhere else Hmm, that's a good question. Because um, you have to be pretty hardy for weather-wise and long distances, that kind of thing. Yeah, there's not a lot of travel to away games. Same with in the United States. Um, yeah, I think you'll have clubs like uh, the the club in Victoria, where you've got the temperate climate. They'll play a lot of games at home early in the season. Um, but yeah, like in um, some of the cities, like in Hamilton, which is quite close to Toronto, or maybe the Toronto Club, you'll have very cold weather at the beginning of the season and at the end of the season. Whereas you'll have brutally hot summer in the middle of the season, you'll have the uh, the continental climate, so it can be a bit rough to play in. Um, I'm not sure. Um, sometimes I look at American clubs and I look at the supporters and I, you know, you hear what they say and how they act. And it is very much American, even though they're at football and even though they're, they're mimicking European style football support, it is very much American. Um, I think being able to um, drink beer in the stands is something that's different than Europe. Um, yeah. Things like that, I suppose this, this chanting that goes on, but uh I'm not sure if there's anything too unique, to be honest with you. Devin, if uh, people are listening to this podcast now thinking, I like the sound of this Canadian Premier League, you know, I have the chance to get in right at the beginning. Could you recommend a club that they should maybe follow that's easier on the eye or has some, you know, star player or something followable about them? Nice kit. Nice kit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, I think Halifax had a particularly nice kit. Um, Let me think. Well, grounds are important, I guess. I think Hamilton has a new ground that was created for the, uh, not the Olympics, not the, was it the Commonwealth? Maybe it was the Commonwealth Games, yes. Uh, So Hamilton has a new ground. Uh, Victoria's Club, which is called Pacific FC. I'm not really keen on the names. That's something that I'm a bit iffy about is that the names often don't contain the, the community or the the, the city that the club plays in. So Victoria's club is called Pacific FC. They have a fairly intimate uh, ground. It is out in the suburbs, but it's nice. And it sounds like the city is actually thinking of renovating uh, an inner city stadium sometime soon. So that would be ideal. I used to go to that stadium for uh, when they were playing in the U S fourth division. So Pacific FC might be a good choice. The team in Victoria uh, Hamilton. So they're known as forge FC um fc edmonton's been around a long time so if you're into the history i would say fc edmonton is the easy choice um i don't know atletico ottawa has a spanish flair if you're (laughs) yeah um halifax they have kind of a cool culture a bit of a bit of crack out there out east not as much as newfoundland i guess you could say but uh halifax is nova scotia which means new scotland so that that might be one as well they're they're kind of a fun club you mentioned the national team and in researching for the podcast, Canada did qualify for the 86 World Cup and that kind of instigated the previous iteration of the National League, which lasted about six seasons, I think. 
Um, Canada will host, jointly host the World Cup in 2026. And we can't speak about Canadian football and not mention the kind of crop of new players like Alfonso Davies at Bayern Munich. And his story in particular is, is fascinating. Born in a refugee camp in Ghana to Liberian parents and moved to Canada. And the year he becomes a Canadian citizen, he becomes the youngest international player for Canada. So is this the start of a golden generation? It's difficult to say. It's kind of tricky. Um, We have had squads in the past where you've had two or three really standout players. And I guess I should back up a bit. I mean, as a Canadian supporter, you're usually following uh, players in, you know, the Finnish fourth division or the German third division and places like Malaysia, um, oddly enough. Um, So you have this weird spattering of players all over. Uh, We've always had fairly decent players, um, but they rarely get together to play. They play it very with disparate styles, I guess you could say, because of the various leagues that they play in. So there's not always a lot of cohesion amongst the squad. So it can be difficult for the manager once he gets all of them together. There have been, I'd say the past generation or two, there have definitely been some gems uh, that play at a very high level. I would say now we probably have more than we have ever had in the past. So that's very promising. It's very optimistic. As you mentioned, players like Alfonso Davies. Uh, we've got players popping up in top leagues now that we didn't quite have before. We've got players playing with in the Premier League uh, with the new French champions, etc. So it is getting a lot better. It's, it's getting a lot more optimistic for us. I think one of the big pluses is that the coaching at the grassroots level has really improved. You used to have a lot of parents as volunteers who they would have no formal training as coaches. And in fact, they might not have ever even played. Hence the, the derisive term babysitting service for, for football at the young age. Um, but you have a lot better coaches. Some of the players, once they retire, they'll go on to a club, become a technical director. They'll hire some of their friends who used to play. So you do have much better coaching at the youth level now. And that is starting to appear at the very young level of the, the professional game. So I do think we will see more and more um, standout players playing for the national team. Um, they're probably not going to stick around in the Premier League, to be honest. They're probably going to go off to the, the top flight leagues in Europe, places like that. Um, so I, I am optimistic for the future of the team. But, you know, since the 2000 Gold Cup, it's been pretty uh, thin picking, so to speak. It's been pretty bleak time. So as a Canadian supporter, there's always that bit of optim or the bit of pessimism, a streak of pessimism. And you're just like if you're a Irish supporter or a Scottish supporter or a Wales supporter, you know, you're, you're good and you have good talent, but you're always up against bigger teams. You know, the U S and the Mexico are always going to dominate in, uh, in CONCACAF. So um, co-hosting, as you said, will be in the world cup and there's going to be more teams in the world cup in the future. Um, 48 instead of 32 now. So it should be easier for us to get to the world cups, I think now, and hopefully we will do better, but uh I think it might take another generation before we can really start to claim to be one of the big three. Because even if we compare ourselves to the, the Latin American teams like um, Guatemala, El Salvador, countries like that, we're not a shoe in to beat teams like that. And sometimes they'll beat us. You know, Honduras, for example, Costa Rica, they're decent teams. So we have quite a ways to go in order to kind of elevate ourselves above them. We're, we're among them right now. We should be better. If you look at the population 
the wealth of the country, the number of kids who play it, we should be a lot better than we are. But as I said, I think the coaching is starting to come to fruition. Uh, as you mentioned, the league is definitely going to help. Um, if we can get more people going to games and supporting the professional game, there'll be more people staying in the game instead of dropping out at ages 12 to 14. So hopefully we start to see the fruits of this league and the new coaching within a generation or two. But even now, yeah, we're, I'm more optimistic than I probably have been for the past 15 years or so. It'd be great to see Canada come on as a football nation. I could imagine a Canada versus USA where you've got a real chance of putting one over on them, being quite a feisty affair. Well, we can't let you go without jumping to the other side of the world. And this fascinating book you've written, tell us what took you to Korea and the inspiration behind Who Ate All the Squid? I love the name. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um... So at uni, I studied uh, political science and Asian studies. So I did uh, two degrees and I had finished my second degree and I realized I've never actually been to Asia. So I felt, felt a bit of a fraud. So um, I thought I'd go out there for a while. And I had actually met a girl in Toronto who was from South Korea. So she, she served as a effective anchor, shall we say as well. Um, so I went out to South Korea instead of uh, living in Seoul, the capital, which is in the northwest of South Korea. I lived in the opposite side of the country, in the southeast, in the Busan, the second largest city. Um, and for me, that was a chance to see a bit of the world. That was my first time living outside of Canada. Chance to travel, a chance to live in a country that takes football quite seriously. Uh, the K-League in South Korea is actually the oldest professional league in all of Asia. So there's good history there. It's a, it's a full decade older than Japan's uh, J-League. Um, so went out there and I realized quite quickly that there was a unique situation happening that Busan had been a very big club, um, but they were the biggest victims of the Asian financial crisis. So usually in South Korea, the teams are owned by these massive corporations that have their tentacles in every aspect of the economy. So you've probably heard of Samsung and Hyundai, similar to, you know, Sony and companies like that in Japan. So most clubs are owned by these big corporations. Um, but Busan's owner, Daewoo, actually went bankrupt in the late 90s because of the Asian financial crisis. And it was the largest bankruptcy in world history at the time. Um, so you had a big football club that had won the league quite often. Suddenly their, their benefactor, their bankroller just disappeared overnight, essentially. And the, the chairman of uh, Daewoo actually fled overseas. There was an Interpol uh, wanted, uh, whatever you call it, out for him. Um, so this team had to basically start from scratch with a lot less money, uh, Busan. Um, and so the year I went out there, it was their fourth season as this newly humbled club. And they had decided to bring in a British manager to manage them and try and revigorate them. And this was the first time there was ever a British manager out in uh, South Korea taking over a K-League club. So that was Ian Porterfield. Uh, Ian Porterfield was famous for scoring the only goal in the 1973 uh, FA Cup final when he was playing for second division Sunderland. So they upset Leeds United, which were a very big team at the time. Uh, so he became famous from that. He went on to become a manager. So he replaced uh, or succeeded uh, Alex Ferguson at Aberdeen. And then after that, he went and uh, took over at Chelsea. He was actually the first Premier League manager fired 
funny story there. Um, but eventually he became a bit of a journeyman. So he went to the Caribbean, he went to Africa, he went to the Middle East, and eventually ended up in South Korea, where he was made an offer to take over at Busan, who were struggling, but had been a big dominant club and wanted to compete again. And it was a really interesting time because uh, South Korea had just hosted or co-hosted the 2002 World Cup, and that was absolutely huge out there. Um, South Korea has a really potmarked history politically of being invaded by Japan or China because of where it's located geopolitically. It's often used as a stepping stone when one big power wants to take over another power. Um, so it had kind of closed its doors to the world and was known as the Hermit Kingdom for a long time. But 2002 was a big opening ceremony or a big coming out ceremony, I guess you could say. They did uh, host the 88 Summer Olympics, but this was, I guess, stage two in their opening to the world. Um, and it was a huge... Uh, patriotic sort of a display that this this country that had actually never won a, a match at a World Cup before, despite playing constantly and qualifying constantly for World Cups, had never won a match. And they proceeded all the way to the, the semifinals of yeah. the 2002 World Cup. So it was absolutely huge. And people with no interest in football were going crazy for this, for this World Cup team. Uh, the players became these big sex symbols and idols and all sorts of things. And it was quite funny. So when I arrived, there was still this World Cup mania going on. And I was in the second biggest city. And this team that had been huge became quite small. But now they had this British manager and they had moved to the new World Cup stadium. So there was a lot of optimism for what they would do or how they would fare if they could improve. They were still challenged financially, but they were wanting to do better. Um, so Ian Porterfield, the manager, brought three players from English football in mid-season. Two of them had played in the Premier League before. So you had uh, Jamie Curitan, who started off uh, playing for Norwich City. At the time when he when he jumped from academy to senior team, they were, I think, third in the Premier League and they were playing in Europe. So they were a big club. And Alex Ferguson had actually tried to get Jamie Curitan to join the Man U Academy. He, he offered Curitan a four-year contract, two-year academy, two-year pro. So he was hoping to make Jamie Curitan part of the class of 92. That, wow. includes, that includes Beckham and all of them. So yeah. he, he actually turned that down because he was settled at Norwich City and he felt that Manu wasn't graduating enough academy players to the senior team. They were just bringing in players on transfer. He thought he would fare better actually getting playing time playing for Norwich. Um, so he was the first player who went out. Then there was a guy named uh, Andy Cook, who oddly enough started life playing in the League of Wales semi-pro and he was having to build cow sheds during the daytime to make enough money to play semi-pro football in Wales. But he was eventually spotted by Burnley, went to play pro for them. And then he moved to his boyhood, the club he supported as a boy, which is Stoke City. And after that, he went to Busan. And then you had one uh, Norwegian player who was playing in, in, uh, in England. So Jon Olaf Hjelde, he played for uh, Rosenberg, a big team in Norway, but minnows for uh you know in terms of european competitions they went really far one year in the uh uefa champions league they beat yeah. uh they knocked out actually uh ac milan and they held juventus to a draw on the first leg so they did really well it was this miracle of uh rosenberg they called it um so he was a big hero because of that a lot of the european teams became uh, interested in him because of that exploit in uefa uh barry almost signed him but he went to nottingham forest and after about six seasons there he decided to go out to busan for a bit of a change of pace so you had this big club struggling and all of a sudden they've got you know a british or a scottish uh, management team they've got three players from uh, english football including two who had played in the premier league and so the story is really about me following this team home and away to all their games, 
Um, I go with the supporters on the coach to all the away games, get up to all the exploits with them. Um, and it was, it was really interesting to look at uh, Korean football and compare it to, you know, British football or football elsewhere in the world to see what's different, see what's similar, that sort of thing. So I had a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. There were a lot of kind of oddities, shall we say, about the league. There were some interesting clubs. I just mentioned that a lot of the big corporations own clubs, but you also had in the past, you had the Korean CIA had created a club because uh, North Korea did very well at the 1966 World Cup in England. So yes. South Korea became a little bit jealous of that. And they thought, okay, we, we can't have this. We've got to do better than North Korea. So they, they arranged all their best players and had this military team. It kind of fizzled out after a year or two, but it was, it was interesting to look back as a historical footnote. And uh, there was one guy who was bankrolling a team. Um, he was the owner of a corporation that he had created, um, but he threw a lot of money into this one club called Sungnam. So they had won, I think, seven titles by the time he was, he was done with them. Um, but he was a bit infamous because he was the head of the Mooney cult. You might have heard of that before. <laughs> yeah, so he would, yeah. he would get these crowds from all over the world in one place. Um, and he would have these mass wedding ceremonies. And he was the guy who was bankrolling this team, Sung Nam, that was dominating the K-League for, for many, many years. So there were all sorts of really interesting stories like that that I've crammed into the book. We do have an article in our latest issue about North Korea's military team. Uh, April 26th, they went by. Right. And their run in the Asian Champions League, effectively. But fascinating. Uh, tell us where people could pick up the book. So my website is probably the easiest place because I've got links to where you can buy it no matter which country you're in. So my website is devinrocliffe.work slash book. Uh, you can also find me on twitter and instagram at who ate the squid devin what a brilliant hour to spend in your company it's, it's we love learning about other countries we have a soft spot for canada it's like the cooler america isn't it <laughs> so we've got our canadian teams now as well. yeah i think i'm going for atletico ottawa just to see how that takes off and um, i should say we we featured a photographer from venezia fc couple of months ago and since he's been on the podcast Venezia have reached Serie A to go up so we think we're a bit of a lucky charm so maybe we're great things are coming to Canadian football on the back of your appearance here so you reckon Atletico Ottawa are going to win the league this coming year do you my money's on Atletico Ottawa <laughs> <laughs> fair enough well thanks very much for having me on gentlemen I appreciate your time it was a pleasure Devin thanks for joining us and to you Taylor once again cheers gents and that's it for the latest episode of the Pokemon Gold podcast. Don't forget to drop us a rating or review and get in contact via social media. Pick up your copy of issue 6 of Ireland's only football magazine in Eason's and Tuttle's in Ireland or online by visiting our website pogmagold.com. Join us next time on the Pogmagold podcast.